Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're very welcome to our pre-Champions League final second captains at the Irish Times. Ken, you're off to Lisbon today. It's all very exciting. Oh. We'll get to that. But I have to start with the big scandal of the week. That's Manchester City only baking two birthday cakes for Yaya Torre. Now, not enough for a big man, apparently, who wants to leave the club. Um, but this is a, a much undervalued aspect of team building. And I saw this myself at first hand uh, only last month. There I was in the office working away on my birthday. Yeah. Uh, assuming you guys had not noticed and had forgotten the occasion yet again, uh, when suddenly I was presented with an ice cream maker. Yeah. I'm sure you were a huge part of this decision-making process. Yeah, the significance because... of which being that I'd mentioned a week or two previously how great it was that Podrick Harrington had once received an ice cream maker from as a gift wife. from his wife, Caroline. Yeah. Um, and, okay, maybe I haven't... I may not have taken this out of its box yet. It's probably still sitting in the office, but I appreciated the gesture. You're actually kidding me. I may have taken it home from the office. I'm pretty you sure haven't made ice cream with it? Are you serious? I've forgotten till today that I had it. This was six weeks ago. Yeah, but I'd forgotten it was only... Th- Well, you said, you sat in that chair and you said, an ice cream maker, isn't that the most amazing present, present, not president, (laughs) the most amazing present anyone could get, the best gift that you could get, an ice cream maker? You actually, you said those words. So then when we were having this discussion, oh, you know, we had this secret discussion, you went out and, uh, and it was like the elves and the shoemaker, you know, the shoemaker went out, all the little elves said, you know, he's gone out so we can talk. What do you think uh, we should get him for his uh, for his birthday? And because because we've been sitting here listening to you saying mm. l- specifically saying what the greatest present anyone could ever get would be an ice cream maker, we said, "Why not get him an ice cream maker? How much are they?" <laughs> Turned out they were pretty cheap. So uh, <laughs> so so we got uh, we got one of them. I can't. I assume that you would be straight home and finding well, out first of all what you actually put in the ice cream maker. This is the thing. I mean, I did start to think about the potentially not particularly positive health benefits of constantly oh, yourself ice cream. come on. The Nespresso machine's already killing me, Ken. I'm drinking way too much caffeine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little jittery here, as you can see. It's terrible. Like, straight from you home. Get, you get hooked on that huge quantities of caffeine. Yeah. I mean, I have palpitations most of the day, every day. That's now. not great. No. Not great at all. The Heineken Cup final, if you know, this year it's not between two teams from the same country, but it was last year and it has been on a number of occasions. And... Those finals, certainly the all-French finals, never capture the imagination, really, of anyone outside France. They're interesting to big rugby fans, and that's kind of about it. And even then, everyone really would prefer a bit of variety. Leinster-Ulster 2012 was a great occasion. I was there at Twickenham, but I doubt the French, I'm not even sure the English were too blown away by two Irish sides playing each other. But it seems to me in the Champions League, Ken, when you get two teams from the same country, and in this case, they're going to be from the same city, Mm. it doesn't detract at all from the excitement or the interest. Am I right? There seems to be almost, at least as much. Well... It's happened on a number of occasions in the last 10, 12 years. And we we have yet to see a good match. Yeah, but you never... (laughs) When do we ever see a good match in the Champions League final? Um, Only when Liverpool play Milan. It hasn't happened too many times, admittedly. Um, the, there was Real Madrid against Valencia in 2000. Madrid just completely destroyed Valencia, which is which is really disappointing. Valencia had been so good that season, they got they collapsed in the final. Um, there was Manchester United against Chelsea, 
which was actually a good game. It was AC Milan against Juventus. Milan the, against the purest Juventus. stream. See, that's that. I, I just skipped straight over that because it's just this awful hole in my uh, memory. Um, there was though a comment from what's the one thing I think I think it was Ancelotti said. Uh, Ancelotti, of course, the manager of the Milan team, the former manager of Juventus, um, where they 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 sat, used to sing a pig can't coach at him, and uh, he didn't like that very much from the Juventus fan. So uh, when the winning penalty went in, I think it was Shevchenko's penalty, he looked at the stand, whichever stand, I don't know if it was the Stratford end or the other one, that the Juventus fans were in, and everybody was completely motionless. It was like a poster, he said. I looked up, nobody was out, nobody was moving. That's the thing that he remembers. But yeah, I mean, it's the only thing anyone remembers from the game, which was nil-nil. Chelsea Man United was a kind of a high-intensity that game. was a pretty good game. It was. It was. You got the sense of a of a big, uh, two big teams. You know, intensely contesting a prize. Um, yeah, it was. It was. It was a good game. Um, I don't think we look at forwards with any less when it's two teams. Football is maybe no. a little bit more. I, I guess football fans say in England or Ireland, for that matter, would watch a lot more Real Madrid matches domestically in La Liga than a lot of Irish rugby fans would watch. Super uh, Super 15 would watch the top 14 regularly I, I would have thought I don't know but uh, we are going to talk to Sid Lowe and Gabriele Marcotti on the show very shortly and we'll also be talking today Ken about the art of penalty taking which we don't know it may well uh, come down to this in the Champions League final and we're going to talk to Ben Little and why, why Ben? Uh, well because Ben has got a new book out called uh, 12 Yards uh, The Art and Psychology of the Perfect Penalty which is released today so He's done a lot of he's done a lot of research on penalty kicks. He's spoken Some great stuff in here. Yeah. Spoken to a lot of um, a lot of players, both English and foreign, mm-hmm. foreign from the English point of view. Uh, he's talked to uh, coaches, um, goalkeepers, pretty much everyone. His who, idea here is why have England failed at this abysmally? And they aren't the only ones. History, you know. This, yeah, yeah. So, uh, but yeah, they are they are the worst ones. Time for Kennerly's report on sport. We do, Owen, have to revisit the Yeah thing because, well, I mean, it's it just uh, okay. I understand that Yaya Toure's agent uh, Dimitri Saluk wants to make more money for both himself and his client. That's his job. It's perfectly understandable that he would seek to extract more money from Manchester City. After all, they've got plenty of money. Why shouldn't he? You know, they can afford to pay him more. Um. But does he really need to do it in such a way as to really embarrass Yaya Toure in, in the eyes of the world? I'm not really convinced that he does. Um, I saw Jose Mourinho on television the other night on talking to Jon Snow of Channel 4 News. Did you? Were no. you lucky enough to see this? No? no, I might have been. I was away on holidays, perhaps. Jose Mourinho has, um, in the closed season, because there's no, there's no football on over the next uh, few weeks that he's interested in, uh, he is going to go and solve the problem of world hunger. Right. So he's like working with the World World Food Program. No, you know, again, I, I don't I don't have any problem whatsoever with Mourinho uh, doing this kind of thing. Uh, John Snow made the point. You know, you, you live in a very well remunerated world. Football people, you know, people in your industry make a lot of money. And he said, yes, yes, you know, but uh, football is so small. You know, I mean, when you compare to uh, big industries, football is a small industry. And sure, you know, people can make a lot. But football does a lot of good things as well, you know. And then he, he actually went and had a pop at Arsene Wenger afterwards, you know, saying, yeah, great, you know. Because they, they, Snow said to him, well, you called him a specialist in Federer. He just won the FA Cup. And Mourinho said, they've won one FA Cup in nine years for them. It's a great moment, you know. So even in his guise of um, I'm going to try and solve the problem of world hunger. He can't rise right, above. Yeah, yeah. But I was a little bit disappointed that Jon Snow didn't use the words Roman Abramovich at any point in the interview because it does rather seem to me that Chelsea's owner is symptomatic of um, a major global problem, i.e. the um, sort of appropriation of vast quantities of the world's wealth uh, by a tiny uh, number of Super wealthy individuals. I would have thought that would be the kind of thing Sean Snow would be interested in. I we honestly, all saw his Alex Ferguson interview. Mm. He was big into power and... Yeah, he gave Alex Ferguson a bit of a thrashing yeah. for his various... What Snow took to be hypocritical views on things. Largely his relationships with players who didn't bend to his will. Mm. 
pretty good. He got Ferguson a little bit, a bit rattled. I would have thought Abramovich is definitely the, the man to talk about. I mean, if you're so concerned about um, inequality, because he did, he, he started off actually asking about inequality and the inequality of in, in the world and economic inequality and how f- football obviously is, the, you know, the top level of football where Mourinho works is like this super rich uh, little oasis, you know. Uh, and I kind of assumed that from there he was going to start mm. talking. But he never he never did make that. So maybe they agreed beforehand that couldn't be done. I mean, in fairness, Mourinho's never going to say much of interest. But the point is, it would have been interesting to see the expression on his face, uh, which I suppose Mourinho was practiced enough. He probably just would have smirked, done the usual, and maybe nothing would have happened. We will get actually to interviewing Styles later. But the point about Yaya Toure is that this just looks so bad. I mean, this is so bad. I mean, first of all, you're, you know, you're wondering is, what what birthday is Yaya? Is it his fifth birthday that they're celebrating, they're supposed to celebrate? Because <laughs> the way that he's behaving. But the quotes from the agent, uh, Dimitri said, look, he got a cake. He eventually concedes that he got a cake. But when it was Roberto Carlos's birthday, the president of Angie gave him a Bugatti. I don't expect City to present Yaya with a Bugatti. Why, why bring it up then, you wonder? Uh, we only asked that they shook his hand and say, we congratulate you. It is the minimum they must do, and it is his, his birthday, and the squad is all together. But he's, this is, he says, uh, it is better they don't put... I hear one newspaper has written, City congratulated him on Twitter. But this is a joke. It is better they don't put anything on Twitter if they're not saying anything to him. The club's owners ate a 100-kilogram cake after winning the Premier League this season. But when they and the players were all together, none of them shook his hand on his birthday. It shows they don't care about him. That's a big cake. That's... One I mean, kilos. Is this, what, is this how you celebrate if... You know, if you you don't drink alcohol, you know you have to find other ways of of uh, really gorge yourself. And you cake. know, uh, what was the Philip Lamb expression? We let the sow out. This is how you let the sow out. We in. don't know how many people were involved in this cake. The club's cake. owners ate the cake. Sheikh Mansour and Bruce Bogtrotter uh, ch- chomped down at a hundred kilos of whatever type of cake it was. I don't know. Yaya Toure, what does he get? Two cakes. That's all, and two hundred and ten grand a week. Yeah, two cakes. I would, by the sounds of those cakes that Yaya Torre got, I'd say they were... 220 four, grand a week, sorry. Yeah, probably four to six kg each, those cakes. Yeah, well, probably, probably four to six. So Certainly that's what, 10% kilo kilo of, the, yeah. of the 100 kilo cake. I mean, it's just, it's so embarrassing. What, why, does, why does it need to be done this way? You know, I mean, are they... Do you think it was the case that the agent went off on one and then... Torre decided he had to stick up for him because initially he had come on Twitter and tried to make light of it and eventually yeah. said, well, no, actually, I have to be clear here. This agent does speak for me. His words are my words. Yeah. Maybe he just feels a lot of loyalty to this guy and thinks, okay, I've got to defend him here even though he's kind of screwed up a little bit. Yeah, I mean, obviously, there was a 45-minute interval between Torre posting, uh, don't believe anything that doesn't come out of my mouth. Don't Please do not take words that do not come out of my mouth. Seriously, judge my commitment to MCFC by my performances. Uh, 45 minutes later, uh, my agent was trying to make a point here on my behalf, joke aside. It seems important for me to make a statement. I'm going to do so. Everything Dimitri said is true. He speaks for me. I will give an interview after the World Cup to explain. And then deleted his first tweet. Hmm. So, yeah, okay, great. You know, yeah, he's probably going to get more money out of Man City. But, like, I mean, just to the point when he was really getting a lot of respect, <laughs> he's just going to be never known as, like, that guy who's really sensitive about his birthday. Can you I mean, imagine honestly, the players, yeah. It's just the most ridiculous thing. Apparently they sang Happy Birthday to him twice as well, the Man City players, but, like, I don't know, this needs to be done There was a video clip. I'm just looking forward to his birthday next year if it happens to fall on match day. Oh. Players should give him a rousing reception, hopefully. Yeah. Roy Hodgson says he, d- he doesn't say Happy Birthday to his players, considers it to be frivolous. And not, nothing to do with football. Uh, and he doesn't interfere in their personal lives. So he wouldn't even want to know when their birthday was, uh, says Hodgson. Uh, he's, he's down in Portugal at the moment, and England obviously training away there. Um, uh, excellent, excellent training, according to uh, Hodgson. He's delighted uh, with everything. Uh, Rooney uh, joined up with him, and you know, fantastic, wonderful, everything's amazing. Um, Hodgson, of course. Uh, has brought Steve Peters. He said uh, a while ago that he he doesn't consider himself to be a psychologist. Um, so that's why he's essentially brought one. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, he says he's a he's a very famous man in that area. Uh, the quote from Hutchinson was essentially, "I'm you know I'm a, I'm a football manager. I'm not a psychologist. So that's why I've brought a psychologist with me." Um, 
Steve Peters, he was a psychiatrist, in fact, not a psychologist, and a, a, a distinction which might seem fine, but one which psychiatrists in particular, I think, can get quite jealous of. Uh, they don't want to be labeled psychologists. Why not? Well, psychiatrist is, is a medical doctor. Mm-hmm. Psychologist, you know, is not a medical doctor, which is to say... Uh, it's a more general type of. I mean, you know, you can you can obviously be, be qualified in psychology. I don't offend any psy- psychologists. Well, no, you're, a, you're, you are a qualified psychologist yourself. Well, look, I do have a degree in psychology. Sure, whether that makes me a qualified psychologist, I'd say it does. <laughs> Certain professional guilds might maintain that you needed to go and do further study. Well, our listeners generally feel better for having heard you speak to them. Yeah, look, that's I'm, pretty much the definition, as far as I'm concerned, of what a good psychologist. But is. look, I would say that it's that. Although, if you are if you are feeling better, that's good. But I credit you with that. I don't I don't want to take the credit. It's you who's made yourself feel better, and I've just been the facilitator. Well, this is actually what Steve Peters uh, says. Uh, he did an interview a couple of days ago at the Liverpool Echo, talking about uh, trying to explain his method because he gets talked about a lot. You know, I mean, I, I noticed that his book, The Chimp Paradox, is. Uh, it's doing very well on Amazon. It's one of the top-selling books on Amazon at the moment, you know, because there's so many mentions of this guy uh, recently in the press. You know, Ronnie O'Sullivan saying how great he is. You know, Liverpool saying how great he is. You know, obviously things didn't go ultimately well, but what a great season, you know. And, and as Steve Peters says, you know, we, we're, we're so hard on ourselves. You know, we can't win all the time. We can just do our best. And I think we did our best. Um, but essentially, I mean, if you want to read, if you want to know what this guy says, you should read his his book, which is uh, which is written in quite a simple style, um, illustrated with pictures of, of um, monkeys. It's called the Chimp Paradox. And the basic idea is that the human mind is um, separated into different components. Uh, the human, the machine, and the chimp. Uh, the chimp, uh, you, are, you are the human. Uh, the machine is kind of like a data center. Include, includes like your memory and sort of all your basic cognitive processes, you know, all this sort of system stuff. And uh, the chimp is, well, the other creature that lives in your mind, uh, you know, an emotional being who, who doesn't think with, with, you know, what we think of as human rationality, it sort of thinks, judges on instinct and emotion. Um, and you've got to try and remember that you're the human, not the chimp, and manage that chimp, uh, keep him not tied up exactly that would be that would be cruel but work with him and when he wants to work against you you got to remember how much stronger he is than you James may look small but they're very powerful powerful arms can bend an iron bar you know into a circle uh, big sharp teeth can get quite very aggressive so you, if the chimp shows signs of attacking you you've got to learn how to how to manage him I'm confused here surely if you can convey to him a sense that you are the dominant creature in this relationship. Yeah. He won't attack you. He'll be afraid to attack you. Well, how are you going to do that? I don't know. I was watching a Louis Theroux documentary a few weeks back then, and most of life's issues can be solved through Louis Theroux documentaries. Yeah. Uh, it was about... Uh, Which one was it? About dogs in L.A. Oh, yeah. A lot of them were problem dogs. Right. And it was about the various different types of personalities and types of trainers and techniques for um, for getting on top of this issue. Yeah. In some cases, there's, there's one very brutal way of getting on top of the issue. Uh, Have the dog put to sleep. Y- yes, exactly. And this is Oh, that, that, that is actually a method. But I mean... <laughs> well, well, ultimately, in the, you know, it is inferred in this documentary that that is what happens to some of these dogs in the end. Well, I mean, people they, give up hope on the dog. Your dog dominance. is gone. But there are other people saying, don't give up hope on any dog. Yeah. It's just a matter, there's something that's gone wrong with that dog over the years. Some human beings have de- dealt with them in the incorrect way. Yeah. But there's always hope for the dog and here are some various techniques. One guy was incredible. One guy was this sort of, uh, he was just really kind of, I, to be honest, I thought, it was a bit like Brendan Rogers. He, the way he was speaking, I thought, oh, this guy's a bit full of it at the start. Yeah. But then when I saw his technique in action... He won you over. Well, it's crazy. The craziest of all the dogs in this entire program was brought... This dog was just rabbit. Just yeah, yeah. Nuts. Complete maniac. Complete maniac. The dog was in the back of a, uh, a van. One of the kind of shutters there. The, the man walks over. The dog... I'll call him the dog whisperer for the sake of it. Yeah. Just walks over. Says a couple of things. Gets the dog out. Immediately ju- jumps on the dog. Yeah. Kind of sits on top of it. Moves around a little bit. Does a little bit of dominating, for yeah. want of a better term. 
Sonny the dog's just walking along, fine, not a bother. Really? But 10 years of, of a, a crazy existence and all this dog need to do is... Now, I don't know... The world suddenly makes sense for the first time. I don't time. know if that's permanent or if it's like sometimes you hear people go to a chiropractor and they say it was amazing yeah. for a couple of days, but then the pain came back. <laughs> the pain returns. Yeah, so maybe the dog goes nuts again a few days later. But uh, where were we? Why was I talking about dogs? Because we were... Because oh, the monkey. Well, I mean, the, the chimp in the brain, you know, I, I don't know if... Are chimps as obedient as dogs? Hmm, I'm not sure... Um, and the, the other thing about this chimp in the brain is that it is a metaphor rather than an actual chimp. Oh. Uh, so, uh, so in that case, I'm not sure if it behaves in, in exactly the way as a chimp, you know, in the wilds of West Africa would would behave. Um, he seems to be labeling a lot of the sort of antisocial type of uh, not just behavior, but impulses and sort of feelings that we have. Like, say, for instance, I hear you. Uh, I buy you an ice cream maker, right? And then, and then uh, at the end of the day, I buy you an ice cream maker for your birthday, right? I make a big deal out of it, wrap it up and everything. You open the ice cream maker. Don't actually show that much interest in it. Put the ice cream maker down on the floor. And then at the end of the day, I see that you've gone home and it's still sitting there, right? I feel this welling up of rage and resentment. That's the chimp, right? Right. That's the chimp. And the human... Is in my head saying, don't, you know, don't jump to conclusions. Maybe he just forgot the ice cream maker. And the chimp is screaming, he doesn't care about the, he doesn't care about the ice cream maker, he doesn't care about me! He doesn't care about me! This is what I have to put up with! And wants to lash out, wants to maybe uh, send you a text message. Um, You know, offensive language. Uh, <laughs> something along those lines. You left the effing ice cream maker in the office. Something again. along those lines, you know. But but whereas the human would say, "Look, you know, hey, if it comes down to it, maybe he's just not that interested in the ice cream maker. That's not a judgment on you. It's just that maybe it just wasn't his thing. Maybe when he said it was the best present ever, that was just something that he thought of to 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 like link one item to another. It wasn't necessarily a genuinely held." opinion you know just settle down everybody there's no need to fall out over this so the human and the chimp have a war sometimes uh, one of them sometimes the chimp comes out dominant and, and horrible things happen you know people fall out you know this is what steve peters is trying to get people to understand you know don't listen to that that welling up of rage don't listen to that voice that's the the, the screaming um a chimp-like voice of fear in your in your head. Don't simply act on impulse. Say, oh yeah, I want this. Grab the thing that you want. Immediately do, you know, satisfy every impulse immediately. Now, of course, this isn't, this isn't the only way to look at the mind. There's a lot of people will tell you that the road to happiness is exactly the opposite. Satisfy the chimp. You know, why not just stroke him, make him happy, give him everything he wants? Sure, other people's noses might get put out of joint, but you can only worry about yourself. I mean, it's a, there are many different ways of, of looking at it. I mean, his, this is his way of doing it. I think a lot of people maybe find it easier to, to think of, if they think of like their, their base human emotions as like a, as a chimp, it somehow seems, well, you know, I shouldn't allow myself to be run by some kind of a simian creature. You know, I'm, a, I'm, I'm above that. You know, I'm, I can, yeah, maybe, it's an, maybe it makes it easier for people to deal with it. I don't think it's a new idea is what I'm saying. What he, essentially what he's saying is his metaphor is kind of a, his innovation. Um, Luis Enrique? Oh, we're finished talking about Steve Peters. Yeah, Luis Enrique is going to bring <laughs> some new innovations to yeah. Barcelona. Don't call me Pep, says Luis Enrique. Uh, maybe in a couple of years, if you call me Pep, then that will mean we've won a lot of trophies and then I'll be happy. Uh, taking over Barcelona promises effective, aggressive football. Um, but also that means we need to defend well, says Luis Enrique, uh, showing that he's maybe a sign that Barcelona are prepared to have a look at themselves yeah. a little bit and maybe make some changes to what they've been doing. Uh, one other thing I want to ask you about, Owen, is um, there was also this this article published by one of the Dutch newspapers about Lou van Kahl and what journalists should do in interviewing him. Oh. Uh, ten golden rules for talking to the new manager of Manchester United, famously obnoxious to journalists. Um, one, be prepared for any possible mood. Um, whether the match has been won, lost or drawn is no indication of whether he's in a good or bad mood. Two, start neutral. Um, what, what would you think of an opening question like, uh, how did your team do or what did you think? You see, you talk about interviewing technique, but we're ta- you're talking about post-match interviews here. Yeah. It's a very different 
I haven't done a huge amount of post-match interviewing again. When I have done it, I found it quite difficult. Yeah. Not to f- because you kind of do end up falling into those rather cliched, neutral questions. Because if you try to get too deep into stuff, they really don't want to know. Yeah. Uh, you must be very disappointed. Not a good idea to ask Zuvan Kala. This is because the match you saw and the match he saw can be very different ones. He's perfectly comfortable declaring a 3-0 loss at home to Sunderland was his team's best game of the season. It's not always about what ends up at the scoreboard. Um, three, don't introduce yourself or he'll know your name, remember it and use it against you. You will not be some anonymous guy with a microphone. You will be Gary or Clive or Tony with whom he will or will not have a feud. He will. <laughs> uh, stay on topic. Talk about the game. It's his language, not yours. Try to avoid the meta interview. An interview with Mr. Van Gaal will almost inevitably wind up being an interview about the interview, or more specifically him asking questions about your questions. This will be the moment you feel the conversation is slipping away. Switch back to the studio or it will end up on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> I thought this was going to be a really helpful technique for getting that interview back on track, and I was quite interested in that part. Uh, no, 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 just give up. Go back to the studio. <laughs> it's finished. Uh, distinguished fact from me. Quite amusing. Um, but yeah, apparently uh, you don't know whether he's joking either. You will never know, as he only he knows, and he never breaks character. Uh, say under three minutes is the last piece of advice, sir. Uh, the longer you go above three minutes, the more likely it is that your interview will end up on uh, All right. on YouTube. Sienna Kennedy's report on sport. I knew the place. Clough, that he calls me Rabbi, didn't know them. He said to me, what can you do that the boss hasn't done? You, the boss. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. But there's no way you can win it better. Why not? Only, no, 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 no. But that's the only hope we're, we're, I've got. We're doing, we're doing lots of four matches. But that, well, I can only look straight. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. Clough, he calls me Ravi. Good luck. Now that might that might be you know aiming for utopia, and it might be, might mean being a little bit stupid, but that is the way I am. I'm a little bit stupid regarding this type of thing. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. I want to book a holiday. I want the flights, the hotel, some flattering new bikinis, a big silly hat, and nice dinners in local restaurants with cute waiters. And I want... No, I have to be beach ready. So I need to be a regular saver. KBC understands spending is easy, but saving is hard. That's why we have a range of savings options with tempting rates that make savings simple. So you can save when you want and spend when you want. Visit kbc.ie, call 1-800-5152-53 or pop into any KBC hub in Dublin, Cork, Limerick and Galway. KBC, the bank of you. Terms and conditions apply. KBC Bank Ireland PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. Now we have got Sid Lowe to speak to in just a few minutes' time. First of all, Gabriele Marcotti is already in Lisbon. And I assume, Gabriela, you're quite excited about the game. Yeah, I am. I mean, the, 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 the remarkable thing about this is that, you know, one way or another, we're going to have, you know, we're, we're going to have a great story out of it. And I think in the end, um, you know, when you cover, when you cover the sport for a living, that's, that's what you look for. Either it's Real Madrid's 10th European title or, you know, Atletico Madrid entering the twilight zone and, and pulling off one of the uh, unlikeliest um, feats uh, in the modern era. Uh, yeah, it really will be. And I know um, maybe we spent too much time analysing football, talking about the managers, but it does seem that there's there are angles everywhere here. And one of the most interesting to me is just these different personalities. You've got Ancelotti, the experienced guy, the, the, the man who seems to just radiate calm up against Diego Simeone, who's just been a force of nature this summer. Who do you think is going to have the edge? Is this maybe the one match where Ancelotti's experience will count for something and Simeone's relative lack of experience could finally be exposed? Or is that a ridiculous question to ask about a manager like Simeone who's shown himself to be among the best in the world? I mean, I think if... You know, if reports are accurate, and and Simeone goes in there, you know, without Diego Costa, without Arda Turan, I think in some ways, um, you know, the the alibi is already there, and he's maybe going to have to take more chances with his lineup, with the way the pieces fit together. Um, so perhaps you know the actual tactical battle won't come into it as much, but. Um, but you're right, uh, two very different personalities, which is ironic because they obviously played the same position and, and dare I say, played it in a, in a, in a similar style. I know 
uh, people may not realize this about Ancelotti looking at him and he seems like, you know, such a such a calm, laid back, sort of, you know, chubby guy, but um you know, he was a he was a very dynamic box to box midfielder, loved to get stuck in. Um but I, I think to some degree the, the that's going to be uh sidelined by, by the absences, but it is strength against strength. It is, you know, a just tremendous defense that Atletico have against this devastating attack that Real Madrid have. I mean, Carlo Ancelotti could become, I think, the, the well, he, he becomes the most successful manager in the history of the European Cup alongside Bob Paisley if, if Real Madrid can win this match on Saturday, which is some achievement for a guy who is so kind of humble about it. Um, I wonder, though, I mean, it's tempting to say that this future rests in the game because if they lose, not only is it a traumatic defeat to the city rival, but they've, it kind of brings the finishing third in the league into, into pretty harsh uh, relief as well. So I, I'd say if, if they lose, he might be, he mightn't be the Real Madrid manager for very much longer. Might that be the case even if they win? Might he decide, well, I mean, I've, I've just uh, won the European Cup. There's not really that much else I can do here. I might as well move on to the next challenge. Um. No, I, I think if if they win, um, I, I, I think staying. Uh, he's, you know, he he, he likes it in Madrid. Um, you know, he doesn't. I, I don't know any other club right now that that he could go to that has an opening and that would be more appealing for him. Um, plus, as he himself has talked about many times, he is fascinated and really enjoying the large variety of uh, pork products available to him in uh, in Spain. Um, that said, uh, you know, could they get rid of him if they lose? I think if they're humiliated, possibly. Um, you know, one Copa del Rey, uh, third place, and a Champions League final humiliation against your city rivals, uh, that would be a bit tough to take. But I also think on the part of, the, of Real Madrid as a club, there's also realization that um, this is a type of manager that they believe they need. And... Um, you know, they don't have a plan B in terms of somebody else to come in should they let him go. So unless, you know, if they lose and it's close, yeah, I think he's going to stick around. Um, if they lose and it's an absolute disaster and he makes a fool of himself, you know, knock on wood, then um, then it might be a different issue. But what they don't want to get into is, you know, during a World Cup having to scramble to find somebody um, and, and kind of, you know, not quite know where you're going. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned at the beginning uh, that either way it's going to be a great story. One aspect of the Atletico story, I suppose, is the this, the, the poor boys who are who are punching so far above their weight by by competing at this level, and you know they've already beaten Barcelona and Madrid to the league title. Um, it is amazing though that they've managed to put together a team with so many good players on so on such a small um, turnover. Is this uh, a glowing tribute to the uh, power of? third-party ownership to transform the fortunes of uh, of the poorer clubs around Europe? Well, you make a good point. I mean, I think it's it's a bit of a, a complex issue. Real Madrid's debt, um, I thought Bloomberg quoted it as, as something in excess of uh, 600 million euros. Um, servicing that debt is extremely difficult, but they were able to negotiate these, these really favorable terms where they sort of pay it off over the next millennium, seemingly. Um, third-party ownership and third-party funding allows them to to have certain players they couldn't otherwise have. It allows them to sell shares in certain players and um, and raise some capital when they need to. Of course, at the expense of uh, uh, of losing out a little bit when they when they sell the players. Um, I think that's kind of the, the the sort of senior underside and why this is not quite uh, you know a Disney fairy tale story. That said. Um, you know, that's not, it's not Diego Simeone is doing. Uh, since he got in, he's been extremely successful. He's taken a lot of players who, you know, maybe only show glimpses and, and then turned them into more consistent, um, players at a high level. I'm thinking of guys like Miranda, uh, Godin, uh, Adrian, Raul Garcia. You know, these are pretty ordinary guys and he, you know, he turned them into, uh, in, in, into real players this season. Others like, uh, like Felipe Luis, who La Coruña was an outstanding left back, but again, in Spain, there's a situation where if you're, you know, if you're an outstanding player, if you're not going to go to Real Madrid or Barcelona, um, then odds are, you know, you're going to Atlético Madrid or Valencia, a club like that, for a lot, a lot less money, and, and that's what they did. They were very clever with him. So um, they they've operated very intelligently. Uh, Caminero is the um, is the director of football there, and I think you know he's he's been. 
quite savvy in in the way he's worked. Uh, but you're right in a in a world without third party ownership and in a world where you know you couldn't go to the uh, to, to, to the tax man and negotiate you know pretty insane terms. Um, Atletico probably wouldn't be here. The fitness levels they've shown have been hugely impressive and much commented upon, it, it, particularly without a couple of key players this weekend. Is there any danger that that's th- their efforts essentially this season are finally going to catch up with them in some way? Well, that's a great question because nobody can believe how hard they're running, how intensely they're running, how much they're running. And people have predicted, you know, a drop off in performance right back to, to February. You know, at some point the wheels are going to come off. Um, thus far they haven't. And, you know, with 90 minutes to go, if, if you believe that, you know, there's a mental side to this, I, I don't see why you would flag at the very last hurdle, you know, when the finishing line is right there. Um, so I don't know that that's necessarily going to come into it. Okay. Who are you going for? My mind tells me Real Madrid because they're a better side, they have better players, they have more experience and everything, but you wouldn't put anything past Atletico. But yeah, I'll stick with Real. Gabriele, enjoy the weekend in Lisbon there. Thanks a million. My pleasure. Let's get straight to Sid Lowe, who was uh, part of the homecoming uh, last weekend. Sid, after Atletico won the league, I followed your Twitter timeline. Some absolutely stunning photographs of the support that was following the the team bus around. I know you were on there as well. the two teams, we have two teams in the same city here. Do Atletico actually maybe have more fans than Real Madrid? It certainly felt like it on on Sunday afternoon. Um, and a lot of Real Madrid fans have been kind of, as you can imagine, quite uh, quite snipey about it. Saying, hang on, where did all of this lot come from? We didn't realise there were so many of them around before. I think one thing is is certainly true. While 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 I think that Madrid is um, is a city in which there are more Real Madrid fans than Atletico Madrid fans, one of the reasons why they're so powerful is because unlike Atletico Madrid, they have an enormous amount of supporters across the rest of Spain and, of course, internationally. And it certainly is true that Madrid is a city that has a huge amount of Atletico Madrid fans. So do you seem to get quite a, quite a close-up view of the Atletico Madrid celebrations? Do they really... Uh let it rip over the last few days. Are these guys going to be in any kind of condition to play another match on Saturday? Well, the the, the best way of, of posing that question is to is to look at the comment from Koke, the midfielder, who said um, on his Twitter feed on Sunday afternoon, I'm sorry I couldn't make it to the celebrations, which I think was a roundabout sort of way of saying, oh my God, my head hurts. Um, I think obviously from Atletico Madrid's point of view, it was important that they celebrated. It was important that they that they enabled themselves to feel like this was a... Uh, a really great achievement that was worthy in its own right rather than completely eclipsed by the Champions League final. But I also think that there was a sense of them kind of getting back to work quite quickly. I was on the bus um, to celebrate the second of the two buses. There were two buses, basically. Atletico Madrid's players on one and then a bus that followed them through the streets. One of the reasons why I had a good bus. second bus that I was on followed them round um, from the Calderon, round the centre of Madrid and back to the Calderon. And actually, I was quite struck that when we got back to the Calderon, there was a kind of sense, and it wasn't that late, it was probably only about half past ten, something like that, that which in Spanish terms is not late at all. Uh, and there was kind of a sense that, right, OK, that's done now, tomorrow we go back to work. Um, so while I think the celebrations were pretty heavy on the on the Saturday night after they'd beaten Barcelona, and while there was, the, if you like, the kind of the formal celebration with the fans on the, on the Sunday, I think they did get back into it quite quickly. And as a the counter question, which is, in fact, are Atletico Madrid in a better shape than Real Madrid because of the fact that they've been competing to the very end of the Spanish league season, that because the, their morale is very high now. Whereas Real Madrid, I think, have very clearly, since the victory in Munich, actually allowed the league season and their own performances to slide. Yeah, uh, I was going to ask you about that, Sid, actually, but I, I do remember reading an account, I can't remember who, possibly it was Steve McManaman talking about the Real Madrid the Champions League victory in 2002 and describing the dinner that followed as possibly the most boring night of his life. Um, this sort of... Steve McManaman, yeah. Was that, was that actually in your book that I, I think that's, that was where I read it, maybe? No, uh, he, 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 certainly, he certainly has, I've spoken to him about it before. I must confess, I don't remember if I included it in my book. I think I didn't, but I think he might have talked about it in his book uh, that, that he wrote for just as after he'd left Real Madrid. And I think because the, one of the things he talked about was the fact that this was in Paris, and of course he had loads and loads of friends in Paris, and none of them could get near them. None of them could get into the team hotel. He was surrounded by directors and, and people that he couldn't really converse with and wasn't really excited about. And I think there's an element of that. And, and certainly 
is true that that I mean, Manamud wouldn't be the only case uh, by any means, and a lot of players have talked about that kind of formal celebrations as actually being something that becomes a bit tiresome after a while, um, and and this idea of there being lots of people who are pretending to be your best friend who really aren't. Now, I don't necessarily think that that that's the case with certainly this time around with Atletico Madrid celebrations, because bear in, bear in mind they haven't done that formal element yet. They haven't been and, and done the kind of the, the the parade with the council. They haven't been the thing where they meet the politicians and that kind of stuff, which I think does um, quite often get to players and quite often quite often bore them. Um, the other thing is that the one thing that is certainly true is I was told by people at Atletico Madrid that there was a very clear sense after the game of a kind of a of a kind Belief that in the dressing room, while there was lots of jumping up and down and hugging and stuff as you would expect, there was also a lot of just players sitting there, just kind of glazed eyes and wow, we did it, and then just kind of letting the whole thing kind of soak out. Soak out is not really the right word, but you know what I mean. Kind of be kind of exhaled from their bodies. And there's a, there's a great bit on a video um, done by by it's called Atletico Madrid Insider, and it's a, a kind of a camera team that follow the team around as part of officially part of the club. And there's a, there's a really nice video on their website. And one of the bits that really struck me was precisely that. There's a moment where they're going around the dressing room saying congratulations to the players, and mostly, of course, the players thumbs up to the camera or they punch the air or they say, come on, or whatever to the camera. And there's a moment where they go past Arda Turan and he's got his headset in and he's just looking at his phone completely in silence. And then there's another moment, this bit that really made me, really struck me, was they go past the corner of the dressing room and clearly that's one of the few places in the dressing room that there's a plug socket. So, so Thibaut Courtois is sitting there with his plug, with his phone plugged in because, of course, it's going down on battery, just completely in a little world of his own in the corner of the dressing room. And I think there is an element of that kind of that kind of climb down after after an extraordinary achievement like that. What about Cristiano Ronaldo? Said he could end up winning two, three, four Champions Leagues with Real Madrid, but he could win none. And uh, they haven't exactly been um, knocking the door down and, and making finals since he's been there. But he's in there now. It's on in Lisbon. He's the ultimate big game player. Is this uh, is the scene kind of set? Do you think for Ronaldo? Well, I suppose it is. Um, it's very special for him, and he was asked a lot yesterday. And yesterday was the, the kind of the media open day um, for for journalists from from across across Europe to go and supposedly at least talk to Real Madrid players. It didn't quite work that well. Um, and Cristiano Ronaldo was asked constantly about to what extent this is special. And he all, in all of his answers, and I heard him say the same thing to two or three different packs of journalists, he, he made a point of extending it to Pepe, extending it to Cointreau, making it about all the Portuguese players, not just about him. But there's no doubt this is huge for him. Um, and, and as you say, it does feel set up for him. It does feel written for him. Although, admittedly, I, I suppose if we're going to talk about finals that were written beforehand, you would say, well, surely the written final in Lisbon would have been Cristiano Ronaldo against Jose Mourinho um, with everything that had gone on before. And the other thing, I suppose, is that Atletico Madrid have, have made a bit of a habit of this. Uh, a year ago, they won the Copa del Rey final at the Santiago Bernabeu against Real Madrid. Exactly a year later, they went to the Camp Nou and took the league title off Barcelona. And now they're going to Lisbon to face Cristiano Ronaldo. Yeah. And they won't be facing uh, Xabi Alonso, obviously, said really important player for Real Madrid. Now, there's so much focus on poor old, poor little Laramendi. Um, first of all, do you think he's definitely going to play? I mean, do, do Madrid have any options? No, I, don't, I, don't think it's, I don't think it's definite at all. Um, I think he's the most natural the most natural change, but I think there's been a slight hint that Ancelotti's not entirely convinced by him. Um, I think if you look at the way that Real Madrid have prepared the last few games, they've clearly, uh, and this was something that came across um, yesterday at the media day, they've clearly, I think, been treating those games as something they've had to get through rather than something they've necessarily had to win, but at the same time treating them as preparation and almost a practice um, run for some of the players. And I think that particularly means trying to give minutes to uh, Sami Kadira to see if he can be fit in time and trying to try out Iaramendi, and yet he hasn't been used in those games as often as we would have expected for someone who obviously was being put into a position playing a role that he hasn't played all season. Now, he is the most natural change, um, but I don't think it's definite. I think it probably will be him, but I wouldn't be hugely surprised if we saw Sami Kadira instead. I think if Pepe was definitely going to be fit at centre-back, I wouldn't even be that surprised if we saw Sergio Ramos in the centre of midfield, even though it didn't work when Real Madrid went to play uh, Barcelona at the Camp Nou earlier in the season with, with Ramos there. Yeah, remember that one. Sid, who's going to win this? 
I don't know. Um, I think one of the things that Atletico Madrid have taught us over the last two years is that we look very, very silly as soon as we start doing predictions. And uh, and, and and having, uh, of course, just written that book about the rivalry of Real Madrid and Barcelona and, 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 and opened, at least in part, on this idea that it's impossible to see anyone else winning the league, only to then watch Atletico Madrid win the league. Yeah. I think predictions, uh, uh, certainly I've been proven to be a bit of a mug. Um, I, I think that the reality, of course, is that in terms of individuals, in terms of players who can win a game on their own, Real Madrid have more than Atletico Madrid. I think Atletico Madrid are probably a bet- more of a team, not necessarily a better team, but more of a team. Um, I wonder as well if the tension has been taken out of Atletico Madrid and, and that, that could be a good thing, but it may well be they're a team that need the, the, the tension. I was talking to an Atletico Madrid supporting fan yesterday who said something extraordinary to me. He said, in a way, I don't even mind if we don't win the final now. We've won the league. That's the thing. Um, and, and I just wonder if there might be an element of that in the mind of, of some of the Atletico players. If I had to choose a favourite, I would slightly lean towards Real Madrid, but I would do it with a, uh, with quite a lot of nervousness. But you can still jump on their bus. Don King style, uh, Sid. You can kind of switch allegiances and jump on their bus <laughs> if, they, if they do the job. Listen, thanks so much for talking to us. Enjoy the game. My pleasure. Cheers. Sid and Gabriele both going for Real Madrid there, Ken. Just my point about Ronaldo, to pick up on that. I'm mm. asking you about that. He's what age is he? Ronaldo, twenty nine. Twenty nine. So yeah, could have a good few years left. He's playing for one of the best clubs in Europe. Maybe he'll win a load of Champions Leagues, but there's no guarantee he's going to be in another final. Even. No, I wouldn't say it was his last chance, but it's his no, best no. chance. Yeah, and here he is in Lisbon. It would be the best place for him to win it. It would be the you know the night of his life. Assuming Portugal are never going to win the World Cup, that uh, if he can do this. With Real Madrid in in uh, in Lisbon, you know what a triumph it would be for him. But you know, I don't know. I wouldn't I wouldn't be betting on Real Madrid for this game. I mean, it means so much to them. I mean, Robin said, Robin said uh, he thinks they're going to win. I mean, after Bayern, Bayern seemed to be really impressed with Madrid. Lamb was saying they played the way that we played last year. When you know when we desperately wanted to win, you could see that this is something that really they're fired up about winning this this thing. And so maybe when they go out against Atletico, but I just think Atletico have had more desire all season. They've had more commitment to every game that they've played. You know, I think that when they beat Chelsea 3-1, it was every bit as impressive as what Real Madrid did to Bayern. And okay, it's the injuries to Costa and Turan aren't great, but they lost Diego Costa and Turan in the game against Barcelona, and it didn't make any difference, you know. Um, so no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't bet against those guys. Or well, it may well go to penalties, and if not, I'm sure we'll be seeing some shootouts in the World Cup. A good time to talk about a new book, which is called Twelve Yards: The Art and Psychology of the Perfect Penalty, written by Ben Littleton. Ben, good to talk to you. Thank you. Uh, the advanced publicity for this book that I've read and that a lot of people might have read a bit about surrounds um, well, but what some of us might have felt was an unlikely source of enlightenment on this subject. Clive Woodward, he uh, gave you a very, very interesting insights and in ways to practice penalties. He seemed to come across as maybe different to the there's a general sense that maybe Woodward didn't contribute a whole amount to the narrative of football and of, of ideas there, but he seemed pretty bright on this topic. Well, he did. When he was coach of, uh, of England's rugby union side back in 2003, he did think creatively and look for uh, other sports, other disciplines to improve his, his own athletes. He employed darts players to, to help his, his rugby players throw straight at line, out, at line outs. And he employed cricketers to help with their slip catching, to help th- catch fast balls quickly. So he, he's no stranger to looking um, from outside disciplines to, to help his sport. And I tried to do the same thing with penalties. I thought there are crossovers with, with other sports, especially actually golf rather than rugby. But rugby kicking is a clear example. Okay, you haven't got a goalkeeper, but you have time to um, prepare and approach a, a ball which you're trying to kick in a certain direction. And Johnny Wilkinson's kicking coach, Dave Allwood, gave me a kicking lesson, which certainly improved my technique. And uh, and I just wondered, well, are England looking at these these other solutions? I spoke to golf coaches, um, an American football kicking coach. I tr- I tried to find answers from other disciplines, and I just wonder if the English England uh, have tried to do the same. What did Woodward give you? Well, he basically said that coaching um, is about psychology. So the idea that. Um, a coach employs a psychologist as well was, was laughable to him because his big thing was trying to make the players better. And he was just not convinced that 
uh, in football culture, we are very good at making our players better. And he, he didn't need to give any examples. But when I just think of Wayne Rooney and how good he was in 2004 when he burst onto the scene of the Euros and look at his career since then, which has been very successful. He's won a lot of trophies. But how he's developed as a player, I'm not sure he's got a whole lot better um, or certainly has improved as much as we felt he could or should have improved in that time. And there is seems to, seems to me to be a standoffishness around English coaches when they get very talented players to make them better. And you, you compare that to Cristiano Ronaldo. There was a stage when Rooney and Ronaldo were at roughly the same level. It was probably about 2007, um, the year before United won the, won the Champions League. And they were roughly at the same level. And then Ronaldo just kicked on and Rooney didn't. And I'm not saying that's because of the coaches or necessarily because Rooney's English. But there's something that happened between those two players. And you look at them now and they're, they're totally different. That, you know, that, that gets away from penalties, but it comes down to the, the same thing of progress, looking to learn and, and accepting there's room for improvement. And for so long with England, we've always said there's no problem with penalties. It's just a lottery. Well, that is not the case. It is not a lottery. We have a clear issue. And what I've tried to address in the book is, is how we solve that. OK, Ben, but against that, England aren't, uh, isn't the only country that has this issue. I mean, in Holland, there's, I, I think it's what's regarded as a pretty enlightened football culture. I think uh, Leuvengal just the other day talks about Robin van Persie. He said, I've never seen a player like this who keeps improving. The older he gets, the better he is. Um, and yet Holland also have a pretty hopeless record. At Correct. Today. I totally agree with you. That's a very good point. Um, but I think Holland's reason for being poor at penalties is different to England's reason. And this is something I examine in the book as well. The only chance England really have of winning a shootout is if they play Holland and it goes to a shootout because neither team will be expected to win. And you think back to the Euro 2000 semi-final, Holland played against Italy. And Italy were on a terrible run of penalty shootouts defeat. They'd lost in the World Cup in 1990, the World Cup final in 94, and the World Cup in 98. And they were playing Holland in in 2000, I thought, well, we're never going to win this. We've lost our last three. But they won because Holland missed five penalties in that game, two in normal time and three in the shootout. And the reason why Holland's missing penalties uh, is because of Johan Cruyff, who we may think was a penalty expert because we remember the famous penalty he took for Ajax in 1982 when he exchanged passes with Jesper Olsen and did the, the little role oh, yeah, yeah. that Thierry Henry and Robert Pires failed to do for Arsenal. But that was actually his only successful penalty in his career. He was rubbish at penalties, and he hated taking them. And usually it was Rob Rensenbrink who took them for Holland, and uh, Gary Muren who took them for Ajax. That was seriously his, the only penalty, literally the only penalty he ever scored? The only penalty he ever scored, Yeah. And so what, how, how did, I mean, okay, so he didn't like taking penalties, but how, how did his influence then become baleful on other... Well, because, because what, what, what Cruyff, Cruyff is, is the disciple of, of Dutch football and what he says goes. And, and he says penalties aren't really part of football. You can't practice for penalties. They're an unfair way to decide a game. They're nothing to do with skill. It's all about luck. And that filters down. So a whole generation of Dutch players, when, when Holland were losing these shootouts in the 90s, they lost in the 98 semi-final World Cup to, to Brazil. When they lost all these penalties, Croft was saying, oh, it doesn't matter. You know, we were the better side against Brazil in that game. Being the better side is more important than, than winning, which goes back to the 1974 World Cup final when, you know, total football was at its peak. And, and in fact, that losing legacy uh, ha- has continued in a way Croft prefers to lose beautifully than, than to win ugly. And he sees winning on penalties as winning ugly. Um, it, it, in England, it's a totally different scenario. We're happy to win ugly. But that idea that you can't practice for penalties and it doesn't matter if you lose on penalties as long as you have the moral high ground in the game is very much a, 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 Dutch, a Dutch theme. You spoke, Ben, to a player from every team to have defeated England in a shootout. Was there anybody particularly contemptuous of this fading in English football? You know, the biggest surprise I had was that everyone really wanted to help. And my, my, my starting point was, I'm an Englishman. I don't want to see my country lose on penalties again. Can I do something about it? Can we help? And every player I spoke to said, I feel really bad for England. I feel bad for you guys. You know, if there's something I can do to help, then, you know, then I'm happy to talk to you. And Ricardo was the most interesting because more than any other player, he is the one that has traumatised 
England fans most. He was goalkeeper in 2004 in the Euros when he saved a penalty from Gerard Bissell without his gloves on, and then he scored the winning penalty after that. And in 2006, he was the goalkeeper at the World Cup who saved three penalties from English players in the shootout. The only player to ever save three penalties in a shootout. And um, he told me that FIFA made Owen Hargreaves the man of the match after that game. And, and he thought it was because he was the only one who scored a penalty against him in a shootout. But he said uh, that in that game, Wayne Rooney was sent off in extra time for stamping on Ricardo Carvalho. Portugal had an extra man in that game and they did not go for the win. They played for the draw because they felt they had a better chance of winning on penalties than they did of winning if they went for it and left themselves open at the back. So they're playing for penalties because they know that England have got a psychological problem from them. Yeah, and uh, maybe, you know, if Matthew Letizia had played in more of these tournaments, um, they wouldn't have had this problem. I mean, he he's somebody who you spoke to in the book as well. The greatest penalty taker in, in say, the last 20, 30 years of, of English football, I guess. Um, what's his secret? Well, he waited for the goalkeeper to move um, and then he would decide where to kick it. And there are two ways of, of dividing penalty takers, really, if you're going to simplify it. One is called goalkeeper dependent, which is what Letizia does. And you wait for the goalkeeper to make his move and then you go the other way. Have you got, well, actually, Ben, similar? I mean, you, I think Gaisco Mendieta was at your, your book launch. Was he, I, he strikes me as another guy who, who maybe waited for the goalkeeper to, to move. He did, he did exactly that. And not only that, he would play... He played with with um, for Valencia and Barcelona with great distinction. And when he moved from Valencia to Barcelona, um, he played a game against Valencia. The goalkeeper was Santiago Canizares, a guy he trained with for the last three years, and he'd taken penalties with at the end of every session. Canizares knew exactly what his routine was, exactly what his penalty strategy was, and he still couldn't save the penalty. So over a long period of time, it's been proven that this way of taking penalties waiting for the goalkeeper to move and then picking your spot like Mario Balotelli does like Eden Hazard does like Yaya Toure does it's more successful it's harder technically to do but it's more successful than just blasting it hitting it you know as hard as you can and picking your spot which is what Ricky Lambert does and that works for him and it's also what Alan Shearer does because if you choose your spot and it's the right spot and you hit it well it's impossible to save but the other way, the goalkeeper-dependent way, is, is proven over a long period of time to be more successful. Yeah, I mean, I, I was watching recently a, um, a couple of videos of Aidan Nazard taking penalties, and it's quite remarkable that he doesn't even look at the ball at all. His eyes are completely fixed on the goal. He obviously knows where the ball is, and he doesn't need to look at the ball. I don't know. But he just is staring at the goalkeeper the whole time, and it's just this complete calmness. And I thought to myself, of Phil Jones in the, the Capital One Cup semi-final against... Sunderland, that was a different approach. Yeah, Phil Jones was one of uh, many English players that night to, to not come away with any glory, was he? Danny Welbeck took one, missed it. Craig Gardner, who's normally quite good at penalties, mi- missed it for, for Sunderland. And then Adnan Yanushai took a terrible penalty yeah. in that shootout. And that was the, the stage where he hadn't declared for, for Belgium yet. And I thought, oh, hang on a minute, this guy's clearly got English DNA with that penalty. Maybe he's going to come and play for England after all. From the goalkeeper's point of view, is there anything that, that tends to... You know, like, for instance, the, the penalty taker waiting for a goalkeeper to move. Is there anything that a goalkeeper can do to increase his chances? I mean, because, you know, some goalkeepers, I can think of Shea Given, for instance, um, who always rated quite highly here and was obviously a good shot stopper. A goalkeeper was absolutely hopeless at saving penalties. He barely ever saves one. Were there penalty, were, are there goalkeepers who have been more successful? And if so, do they have specific techniques? They, they are. A lot of the time with um, successful goalkeepers is because of self-fulfilling prophecies. So they'll get a reputation for being good at penalties. And then the opposition striker will will know about this reputation and their margin of error is suddenly much smaller. So rather than going for uh, towards the, the far corner or, 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 you know, or the top corner or the, the near post or whatever, wherever he's going to aim for, he goes for the the hardest, tightest corner to go for because he thinks the, the goalkeeper's got an edge on him. And that leads to players missing, which improves the, the goalkeeper's rate. But one thing I did find in the studies is that while there are three options, really, for the, for the striker to kick the ball, you can kick left, you can kick right, or you can kick down the middle, many goalkeepers still see themselves as only having two options in where they dive, either left or right. And if you could divide 
where the ball is kicked as 33, 33, 33 to each part of the goal, goalkeepers do definitely, do definitely do not stay in the middle of the goal a third of the time. And a lot of goals are scored down the middle. And if more goalkeepers stayed in their spot, they would be more it's, successful. It's because it goals. makes them look stupid if they're just standing there. And well, the ball yeah, runs but in. how stupid would they make the penalty taker look if they stood there for a Panenka? I, you, yeah. the, the, the Panenka seemed to have a fairly successful, <laughs> stunningly successful um, rate of conversion, I would have thought, it's Ben, considering how high risk they are. Yeah, but not not, not all of them are, you know, are scored. Think of Gary Lineker in 1992 against Brazil. But he's, he's the only one I can think of. I mean, all the other well, ones are, are in the net. One, uh, Mikel Londro, the, the French goalkeeper, took a penalty to win the League Cup final for Nantes in 2004. And he had scored his first penalty in the shootout in the semi-final and he'd saved penalties uh, in, the, in, in the final and it was his turn because it was the sixth penalty. And he tried a Penenka. And this guy's actually got the best record of saving penalties of everyone who's currently playing football at the moment. So he plays quite a big role in my book. And he tried a Penenka. He'd never tried one before. And he said, you know, as I approached the ball, I felt I was going to score i felt i'd chosen the right spot to uh, to kick the ball and i felt that eighty thousand people who were watching had no idea where i was going to kick the ball but only one person knew what i was going to do and that was the opposition goalkeeper <laughs> and sure enough it, it was teddy richer and he saved it and uh and everyone said oh londro you know what a fool you made yourself look stupid you humiliated yourself and he said no i'm a risk taker and i, I would do the same again tomorrow and, and the only thing i'm upset about is that we didn't win the cup i have no regrets Je ne regret rien, and um, but it, but it has happened. Um, Michael Sula, um, a striker for Udinese, missed um, in a Champions League playoff shootout for Sporting Braga. Um, that, that that you know meant that his side didn't make it to the Champions League group stages. They they have been missed. Or on the other hand, um, and this is something I asked Penenka directly. I think that if a team scores a Penenka from a shootout the value of that goal is worth more than just one goal. And as examples, I give you Pirlo mm. against, against England. Toddy, Toddy against Holland as well. Toddy against Holland is a very good example, although the Dutch by then had blown it because I think they'd already missed three penalties. Um, but also the night before the Pirlo penalty, um, Sergio Ramos scored a Penenka in the semi-final between Spain and Portugal. And the next person to kick after Ramos was Bruno Alves. And he missed the target um, after that. And and after Pirlo was actually young and he missed the target. And there is a sense that scoring a, a Panenka in a shootout does shift the momentum towards the scoring side and heaps more pressure on the next kicker. And I said to Panenka, do you think that if you score a Panenka in a shootout, you know, there is, it is harder to score the next penalty? And he said, yeah, I, I think there is. I mean, his Panenka was, that, was, a, was a winning kick, so no one could kick after it. But that's almost what made his... his his kick so astonishing that in 1976 he was playing for essentially a communist country and he and he tried something so spontaneous and dangerous that uh, that if he hadn't been successful, I think the, the repercussions would have been quite serious for him. Ben, I can't let you go without asking you to back up a theory that I have. That is that left footers like where possible to place the ball to the goalkeeper's right. Is that true? <laughs> okay, that's a, that, that is a very... I, I love the, the specificity of your question. <laughs> yeah. I did look into every kind of, uh, of, of, of potential strategies and, and patterns in penalties. And I went into it thinking that left-footers would have a better record from shootouts and, in fact, all penalties than right-footers. And that is not the case. Um, there is no statistical significant difference between left and right. And, and it, the same is true of where they aim okay. as well. So you may think that um, left footers are more likely to aim to the right. But unfortunately, I'm going to have to bust that myth. There is, uh, there is no significance or, or, or major difference in where left and right footers aim and or their success rates. Great. Another piece of knowledge I thought I had about football just <laughs> out the window. Ben Littleton, 12 yards, the art and psychology of the perfect penalty. Listen, great to chat. Thanks so much. Thank you. Can we go back to Johan Cruyff there? I find it fascinating that mm. that penalty. If people remember that, was was it his teammate who nudged it onto him and yes, then he Brolson, scored? I think yeah. he basically played a one-two. Yeah, and so he played. He he took the kick and yes, Brolson, he played back to him and then he knocked it. So the only goal he ever scored, the only penalty he ever scored, was the one where there was movement involved. I'm just thinking of the brilliant orange book by David Winner, mm. where he really explains so superbly the obsession that Cruyff had and many Dutch footballers have had with space and angles and how he uses things. It seems as though maybe he felt that 
Cruyff might have felt that penalties were beneath him or just were to his they weren't maybe aesthetic enough or maybe he was just bad at them and realised that early on in his career yeah. and then decided that he had to be snotty about them I think it's a bit hipsterish I have more respect for a guy who just scores all the penalties that he takes like Balotelli used to you know before <laughs> I mean Balotelli because it, it, it does it did look like a superpower for a while that Balotelli had it's like I can't I actually literally can't miss I don't care about this penalty that's um, the impression he would give to you yeah and he always therefore goes in always would score I mean um yeah, it's, I don't. I don't know. It it just seems like that whole attitude of oh, you can't practice is so insane. I mean, if that was the case, you can't practice anything because yeah. it doesn't t- take place under the exact same conditions that you're going to be doing it in. I mean, when I see footballers training, I mean they're they're you know running around this you know often dreary looking training ground wearing uh, different outfits, uh, silly hats, gloves. It's a completely different sort of a setup. You know, there's no there's no spectators. Um, how can they possibly be preparing for what happens in the stadium? And also, the, you're, you're constantly hearing about the battle that the national team managers, particularly the English manager, has in keeping his players from getting bored at major tournaments. <laughs> well, one way is to practice some penalties. Christ. And OK, there might, it might make no difference or there's a, at least a reasonable chance it might make 1% difference mm. or possibly even a 10 to 20% difference. And you're constantly hearing in sport about that it's about the 1 and 2 and 3% that's what will win you games. Yeah. So why not, you know, if they're so bored playing the PlayStation or whatever they play now, just get them practice a few Well, Woodward, Woodward told uh, Ben Littleton that it's not, it's not really just about practicing at the tournaments. It's about practicing every day. He thinks they should do it all the time. Now, I mean, whether everyone's going to practice penalty, I mean, most of the time, it's, the player's going to have no use for it. But, I mean, Frank Lampard, I think he's stick five penalties after every training session. But it's usually quite enjoyable. So I'm, I'm thinking here as you know, somebody who is not a professional footballer. Mm. But I think, you know, you have a kick around and then there's a penalty shoot at the end. It's always good crack. Yeah. Maybe it's not such good fun for... Maybe if most footballers finish their training session, they just want to go home. Yeah, I, gu- I guess they penalties. do. And, that, and that's why the ones who just want to do a little bit more are the harder working ones who tend to improve a little bit faster than the ones who just want to get out of there. Can enjoy Lisbon. Great city. You've been there for big football tournaments before. Yeah, I was there for Euro 2004. You're looking forward to it? It's good. Can't wait to. All set up. I'll tell you all about it, Don. Next Monday. Next Monday. Enjoy it. Take care. Thanks for listening. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.